that's just the one. to start. is just to take a few moments um, just in a general way to just uh, connect in with the body uh, as just a way of just settling in and, and getting here. We often come to practice, especially coming at the end of a day, um, carrying just the busy- busyness of the day. And there can be a lot of things um, rattling around in our bodies and our minds. So just just to connect into just either a general sense of the body or to touch in and see if there's any particular strong sensations, tension or um, just anything with fatigue or whatever we might be feeling. And not to do anything about it. We're not trying to get rid of it, but just as it's more of an acknowledging making ourselves more, just more uh, aware of it. Take the first few moments now, um, especially if you're new to practice, this is a good exercise, is to just take the first few moments to listen to sound and just to hear whatever sounds arise in the room, traffic noise or any sounds from inside the room. particular, uh, invite you to notice that you don't have to struggle or work very hard to, to hear sound. Just by turning your attention towards hearing, sounds arise and pass away just quite easily and naturally on their own. You don't have to do anything.
And it's similar for any experience. Any experience can be known or, 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 or can be experienced uh, quite naturally and easily just by turning our attention in, the, in that direction. So now to uh, bring the awareness back into the body <coughs> and just to uh, connect in with your breathing. And in particular, just finding the place in the body where you um, can experience the physical sensations of the breathing, just the clearest and the easiest. It's a very simple uh, instruction. And just rest your attention there. Sometimes people will, will use the expression to watch the breath. But it's actually, it's watching, but it's, it's actually connecting with experiencing the breath. Find a place where you can feel the breath the easiest and the clearest. So for, uh, for some people it may be the coolness of the air entering and leaving at the nose. The sensation of the air. For others it may be the rising and falling of the abdomen of the belly. Could even be in the throat or the chest. It, it doesn't really matter. It's the pl- everyone's different. It's finding your place. And if you don't know, you can experiment a little. But it, uh, at some point, you'll want to settle into one place and and work there. for the time being, as much as possible, if other experiences or sensations arise, either in the body, emotions or sounds, let everything else stay in the background for now. As much as possible, just work with the breath and let the breath stay in the foreground of your awareness. As the practice develops, we open uh, the field of awareness to include all experiences. But in the beginning, uh, it can be quite helpful to uh, focus the awareness and continue working just with uh, watching the breath. Often 
will give a, uh, uh, another technique you can use, which is a mental note or mental labeling technique, if it's useful. And it's just another aid to help keep the mind directed to the breathing so that if you find it helpful with each breath, you can make a soft mental note of either in, out, if you're experiencing the breath at the nose, or rising, falling, if you're at the abdomen. Most of the awareness stays with the breath itself, and the mental note is just, it's just kind of an, an extra, um, it just helps direct the mind. And if it's not useful, if it's awkward or clumsy, just forget about it and just stay with the breath. piece of instruction that I'll add in tonight is um, you probably noticed that uh, the mind has a tendency to wander off, get lost in thought or planning, daydreaming. It's actually not a problem when the mind wanders off. Um, When you've wandered off in thought, you don't even know you're gone anyway. So when you're gone, just be gone. But it's in that moment of waking up when you realize you've been lost, of just returning back to the breath then and starting over. And this is the place where, just as when we were listening to sound, it's good to incorporate this idea of not struggling. It's important not to, you can put effort into your practice. And you can work hard, but we don't want to get into a struggle. Just be with the breath when you're with it. Be gone when you're gone. When you wake up, come back. difficult sitting sometimes you know when we meditate it can be quite pleasant and we're calm and whatever peaceful or we're into some deep meditative state and and then other times you know it can be quite difficult we might be sleepy or our body is hurting and we you know we're restless and can barely sit still and we feel like you know when is that bell going to ring and it's interesting to notice when that happens that I've found when I've been in that state, you know, just trying to get through to the bell rings and then the bell will ring and I'll just feel this relief. And you notice in those times, like, I haven't moved yet. Nothing's changed. All that happened, I was sitting, I was in hell, and then, (laughs) ah, I'm in heaven. 
nothing else changed except this sound. It's just good to notice that that experience of the suffering, what I'm calling the heaven or hell, or the suffering or difficulty, was really created in the mind. He was totally created, right? In that example I'm giving. So it's just good to notice how much of our experience we create in our own mind. It's just a real simple example. Of course, we do this all the time. Actually, that's the whole kind of getting to the heart of what the Buddha was talking about around the nature of suffering. He was making a separation between pain and suffering. We might talk about that a little more tonight. But I just wanted to point that out, if, if you happen to have that experience. I've certainly had that happen to me. Um, so I do have plenty of things we might talk about, but I wanted to ask if anyone had any questions about, uh, it could be Dharma questions, but or meditation, in particular uh, meditation practice questions. So I don't know how that was for you. You don't, we don't have to get into it. I'm not necessarily trying to extract questions, but um, since you've had some mindfulness practice, but I'll just want to add in that uh, there's many ways that Vipassana practice is taught and many techniques that, that are given. There's actually a whole range of practices. Um, and we tend to teach a particular style that comes out of, uh, from Mahasi Saidao, uh, Burmese style. It's also taught in other places. And this working with the breath is, is foundational, but it's actually there's a lot more to just to be aware of. Although it is said that, you know, just the breath really, and I think it tends to be true, really contains probably most or everything that we need in our practice can really be found even in the breath. But there's ways to also just to, to incorporate all other experiences because obviously when we sit, there's a lot else going on. There's uh, things that can come up in the body, you know, our bodies can hurt or be ache or whatever, or be pleasant experiences and thoughts and sounds and emotions. And so we're really not pushing any of it away. It's actually an inclusive practice, but we tend to start with the breathing just to gain a certain amount of concentration and to build up the mindfulness that then to allow us to not get so lost in the rest of the experiences so that as we do open to them, we've got a stability of mind that's there to really be present. That's kind of the idea. But, you know, just give a little instructions tonight. We usually start just with some breathing practice. Okay. Um, I actually had a couple of things on my mind, and see, we'll see how where we go with it. Um, one thing that came up for me is um, I was recently talking with a friend I think was going through, who does not practice in this community, but in another Dharma community. And I think she was having some kind of difficulty with either the teacher or the community. And she was kind of in a huff. And she came to me and said, well, you know, we come to these meditation groups and we all sit out there and somebody sits up in front and tells us all how it is. And she went on and on. She's a long-time practitioner. I think she was just having, I don't know what was going on there, but we talked about it. And I thought that was actually an interesting comment, though. Because, you know, in this practice, we don't really tend to have, you know, these gurus. We don't think of like that that sits up in the front like some. And, um, and we're just all, you know, it's, this is not like that. But, I mean, hopefully, if someone is, is leading a practice or is, you know, in the teacher role, they have some 
they've learned something. But I think what was interesting when I reflected on it, it's because it's very clear to me that, um, you know, really, we all know our own truth, and we don't need anybody to tell us how it is. We know how it is. Matter of fact, nobody knows how it is for you, except for you, right? Nobody should be sitting up to tell anybody how it is. That's the whole practice. Because it already is how it is. As we open to our truth, ourselves... One of the questions that we're being asked is, is that we can we really just be pre- present for our truth? <coughs> See, one of the things that happens in the practice is, is that we tend to, um, because we're gaining a certain amount of concentration, which most people don't do in their lives, you know, we're just caught in life and we're just running around and we don't really train our minds. So our, and then you see when you sit to meditate that our minds are just quite out of control for most of us, probably all of us to some degree, right? So we just sit and try to quiet down and just to get become present with our experience. We're actually in a conscious way trying to generate a certain amount of concentration and a certain amount of mindfulness, ability to be present and ability to know what's real and true. And then we go in sort of uh, an, an inner exploration So it shouldn't be a surprise to us then by doing that that all sorts of things are going to be revealed. Sometimes this practice is called a purification practice. It's one way to think about it. Uh, I don't know that we would necessarily think that the purpose is purification. The purpose is more finding a freedom and uh, a way of being present with our lives and awakening to our lives and, and really kind of... Um, a way of, of, of uh, not being at the effect of everything so much, but finding a freedom in the midst of everything as it is. But there is a purification aspect that happens because as we start to deepen, it's the image that's often used is one of peeling the onion is used quite often. And as you peel away layers, you see more. And we're going to see everything, so we're going to see the... I don't know if this is the best way to say it, but we're going to see the beautiful. We'll see the not so beautiful. Everything will be revealed. And we've all got both. Just a mix of everything. And everybody, I think, would want purification, right? We just don't want to go through the purification process to get there, right? It's like we all want to understand the nature of suffering, but how do you understand something, the nature of something? You experience it, right? That's how you come to know something. So if we want to understand the nature of suffering, we have to come face to face with our suffering. And then we start to look at, well, where, wh- what's really that cause there of that suffering in our lives? So we're going to be confronted with it. We're going to open to it. We're not going to automatically run away or try to mask over, you know, if there's something unpleasant all the time. Of course, we'll do that to some degree. We all do that, right? None of us want, you know, to want suffering. We all want to have more pleasant in our lives. Isn't that true? Everybody does. I mean, I was thinking about it, these, ringing these bells. I was, 
kind of kidding around when I first came here because it was both bells, and I said, oh, I want to check out and see. Some of you came in late, but I said, oh, I want to see which one I want to ring because here's this nice big, big one. And, you know, it's got this beautiful sound. I just love the sound of that bell. I said, well, let me test them out and see which one. And then there's this one. Well, that one's pretty too, but I like the big one. I'm going to ring the big one, really. Right? I wanted to max, I mean, it's kind of a silly example, but I'm trying to get the most pleasant. I really like to ring this bell. Just, you know, I don't get to sit up here and do that. I just, I really do. I'm kind of making a joke about it, but I'm not, I'm really not joking. You know, I love to ring this bell. It's just beautiful. This one's good too, but I just don't get quite as much pleasure. It's good too. You know. I think that's really kind of for myself. It's kind of a metaphor, really, of how I live my whole life. Right? I, I don't. I want to get the most, not necessarily pleasure, but pleasant. And I don't I want to lose, get less of the unpleasant. So um, it's kind of so that's what we're all doing. But in this practice, uh, we're kind of being asked to um, maybe work on a different way of being, which isn't just at the effect of what's going on in my body, in my mind, and in my life. And can I, uh, if I don't like it, get rid of it or get distracted? And if I do like it, try to hold on to more of it. But more of a finding a way of being kind of more. Um, uh, maybe a stability might be a word, a resting place just in the midst of it all. That's that inner freedom so that the happiness is not... Some of you heard me say this. I say this almost every time I give a talk. (laughs) But it really is getting to the heart of it. It's like that the happiness is not so much dependent on having or creating some particular kind of experience, but more coming to terms with or finding a way of being with whatever the experience is that we're actually having. And so it's kind of a freedom that's not dependent on these changing causes and conditions. That's kind of the idea. And um, another thing that came up for me when this friend of mine was, when I was talking was, it made me reflect back on, you know, well, what have I learned? in my meditation for myself. And we could all reflect on that. Because one of the things I've heard said, I think this might come from the Dalai Lama, but that if you're going to judge your meditation practice, and you know that's a whole other question of whether we should be getting into that whole judging anyway. But let's be honest, right? We're going to judge it. <laughs> Until we're free from judging, we're going to do that, right? It's just part of the way the mind tends to work. So if we're going to get caught in that, a better way to judge it is not looking back over one meditation practice or one week or one month or even one year, but you need to look at it in five-year or ten-year increments and then look back and see if there's been an effect or what's been gained or what's been learned. And I really find that very inspiring. And I've looked back, I've been meditating um, a lot of years and um, it has been a shift. I can really say that. It really has been um, that the pra- I can say that the practice really does have a deep effect, and really it seems that it, many people have felt found that it's just utterly transformative when you really 
give it what it needs to, you know, like anything, if you want to get the result, you know, it requires a certain amount, which isn't always easy to do given how our lives are busy, so we need to acknowledge that. It's not always an easy thing. And I'm reminded of this wonderful um, uh, image from the Buddha when someone once asked the Buddha what the difference was between an ordinary person and an enlightened person. And the Buddha said, well, both the ordinary person and the enlightened person just experience the whole range of life. All the pleasant and the joy and the happiness, but also all the difficulty and the pain and the suffering. Right? And the image he used is with the pain and the suffering, he says both the enlightened person and the ordinary person experience the difficulty. It's like they both, you've been shot with a, he says a dart, but he means like an arrow. You've been shot with an arrow. And he said, but, it, then, but the enlightened person isn't making a problem about it. The ordinary person makes a problem. So on top of the pain and suffering itself, then the ordinary person just uh, you know, gets in aversion and creates this whole problem. It's like uh, they shoot themselves a second time with the second arrow. called uh, the, I think it's the sutra or the image or the parable, the simile of the two darts, if you're interested. Someone's writing, so I, and I can tell you where it's from if you want later. But that's a wonderful image, isn't it? It's just like uh, the, talking about earlier about ringing the bell if you're having a difficult sit. And you may be sitting in, say, pain. Say you have knee pain, Right? So there's the knee pain. It's unpleasant. It's actually possible, and I know many people here uh, who've been sitting a long time, I'm sure, have, have experienced where it can be unpleasant, but you can actually be quite uh, equanimous with it. And it's not really a problem. You can actually just be present with it and know it's unpleasant, experience it. Then it's a whole other level of suffering if we add on top of that our struggle with it, trying to get rid of it. Oh my God, I'm not going to make it through the sitting and all the stuff we create in our mind. And you get to experience that when that bell rings and the mind has that ah experience even before you've moved so that the knee pain itself is still there. You get to experience in that moment, a moment of liberation. It's a moment of actual direct experience where we still have the first dart we've been stabbed with, so to speak, which is that pain. But we don't shoot ourselves with the second arrow. You get to feel what a difference in the quality of being. So I think the idea isn't so much that we're going to reach this transcendent space of, of... bliss and harmony and nothing unpleasant is ever experienced. But there's a deeper freedom in relationship to it all that we can find. If there is, the Buddha is saying there's actually a way of being in relationship to our own lives exactly as we found them, just as it is with all the difficulty, where we can start to become more in harmony with our lives as it is. So I don't know what the ultimate experience, you know, if you could be a Buddha, what that might be like. But as I've reflected back on my own practice, I can say that compared to maybe how it used to be at plenty of times in my life, 
I don't shoot myself with that second arrow nearly as often as I used to. Not nearly as often. That's a real fruit of the practice. Or, oftentimes, when I am about to shoot myself, at least I know I'm about to shoot it. You know, I know, okay, I'm picking it up. I'm about to shoot. Okay, I'm going to (laughs) shoot. Yep, I shot myself. At least I have more awareness about what I'm doing. (laughs) And, of course, there's the times when we're just caught. When we're just caught. And it's part of it, too. And that's the part where we have to bring in just the compassion for ourselves. The wisdom is that part of knowing and becoming more aware and free. And the compassion piece that goes right along with it is the part that just says, yeah, you know, sometimes it does hurt. And sometimes we're not wise and we're not free. And, you know, we're not on top of it. It's got us. And just to acknowledge that. And that... Uh, what I find is by bringing those two pieces together, the mindful awareness coupled with the compassion, when those come together, that I've found for myself, and you can see whether or not that's true for you in your own life um, if, as you work with it, most experiences I'm able to be present for a lot more. If I can remember, if I can be awake enough to know to bring those two, that there's that big container of the compassion And then within that, it kind of gives me that softness and that acceptance and that space to then meet experience, whatever it is, with the mindful awareness. And they kind of both have to be there in the right balance. And then I found that I really can be there, present for my life for more and more of the time as the practice has unfolded. That's what I found to be true. So I invite you know each of us to look and see if that's if it's true you know in our own in each person's in your own life. One way to to think about it is is that. I think the practice allows us, I've found it's true in my own practices, to trust our own experience more, to, to trust our own lives. You know, we so often are in uh, what I like to call, say we're in an adversarial relationship with ourselves, with our own being, with our own lives. It's like there's a war going on there. Right? We don't like it. I have a little quote here I was reminded of. and Let me see if I can find it. I have discovered that all of man's unhappiness derives from only one source, not being able to sit quietly in a room. I've discovered that all of man's unhappiness derives from only one source, not being able to sit quietly in a room. I think that's exactly what's being pointed to here. That we project, we're projecting all our troubles out there. 
And that's not to say that that isn't real, right? Because there are plenty of troubles just out in the realm of experience that, that comes to us. So we don't want to diminish that. Right? We don't want to say that that's not real. We want to acknowledge that. But we also want to take responsibility for the part that we bring, that we overlay on top of experience. There's a certain amount of the difficulty in life that, let's just face it, is there. And, and it's just part of life. Right? Life just has that aspect to it. So I think really Vipassana practice is not so much trying to create some meditative state. Although if we practice long enough, or for those of you who have, um, you, know, you know that those states can and do come. And they, they're great. I mean, they're great. In fact, I was talking with um, a Dharma teacher, one of the Spirit Rock teachers, just last week, and we were just chatting about this, and we, and we were both saying, I don't know if I'm supposed to really say this to you guys, but I'm going to say what we, we, we just we said, let's be honest. We all want those meditative states. And it's true. They're great. But what's also true about them is, is that they don't last. They come and they go. Just like the difficult meditations come and go. And it's just like life. The pleasant and the beautiful and the parts we love comes and it goes and the difficulties come and goes. It's just a change. Why spend a lot of time trying to create some special experience that isn't going to last anyway? Much better to find that freedom that's not dependent on any of the experiences. So when the, the highs come, we experience them. Matter of fact, we probably experience them more than maybe we ever have because we're more awake and more present for them. We actually get to enjoy them more, but we're not clinging on to them. We can, when it's there, we can be there, and when it passes, we can let go. So it doesn't jerk us around so much, but it doesn't mean we become numb and we don't feel it. And likewise, when the difficulties come, they don't jerk us around as much. We feel them. Now, this, this is the downside. We also feel them more deeply because we're more awake. Right? We're going to experience everything more deeply. But our ability to be free and present and awake with those experiences is also deepening right along with it. So when they talk about opening to the richness of life, you know, it's, all, it's the richness of the beauty, but it's the richness of the pain too. So that's, that's what is just the natural fruit in the opening of this practice. But it can seem confusing sometimes because we often say, I'm just sitting here talking and using words like, you know, opening to, accepting, being with. You know, we're not trying to create any special states. But wait a minute. We're also talking about Developing mindfulness, developing concentration. Well, that's part of the meditation instructions. We say that also, right? That's a different flavor. That's actually talking about that is developing something because if I don't have any concentration, I am trying to create 
something that wasn't there or increase or gain something, create special states. You know, concentration, mindfulness are special states. You know, they can be increased, they can decrease. How do those two come together? Ultimately, what the Buddha, when, when the Buddha was asked if he could talk about, if he could um, express his teaching in one sentence, he said it, he could, and he said it really comes down to uh, not clinging. Not clinging. He said the whole dharma, the whole teaching, could be summarized as nothing should be clung to, basically, was this uh, a paraphrase of, of, what he, of, his, of the quote. And he's pointing to what we've been talking about tonight, about finding that freedom not in, tri- in, in the flow of experience, but something, a, a deeper place in which we're kind of in harmony with the flow of life. But if I say to you, okay, don't cling, you can't do it, right? I mean, you can do it in a moment. We can all do it in a moment. And we've all had plenty of moments. Everybody in this room, even if you don't think this applies to you, it does. Everyone in this room has had moments of a taste of liberation and freedom, moments in which we were not caught in a lot of aversion, not caught in a lot of grasping and clinging, might have been kind of just kind of open and happy and free in the flow of life. Maybe the sense of self, what we self consciousness wasn't or self awareness wasn't even that strong. We were just kind of, we may not have noticed those moments even. We were just kind of in the flow. We've, everyone's had that. But the problem is, is that the seeds, the conditioning is there. So when the when the circumstances come together just right. It's like when people say, you know, getting your buttons pushed. When the, when the right things come together that can hook us back in, those seeds have not been uprooted that just bring it all back together in a solid way and we're caught again. So in this practice, we are uh, kind of working on um, loosening that conditioning a little bit, right? So then it just comes down to, well, what's the wise and skillful means towards more freedom and, and, and the ability to not be grasping and clinging so much. Okay. In the, um, uh, I think most of you, some of you may not be aware, but most of you have heard of the Buddha talks about his Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. I don't want to really go into that much, but just to say that the Buddha laid out this path called the Eightfold Path, and it's it are eight Pieces. It's not really steps because they're not linear. We practice them all together. But eight pieces of practice about having a, what's usually called right uh, view or right understanding. I'll just say them real quickly. That's one. Right thought or right intention. Uh, that's the wisdom part. And then the next three are kind of the morality part or how we live our lives, which is called right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So living and acting in a way that leads to more happiness and freedom for ourselves and for others. And then the last piece, the meditation piece, is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So, so if you don't remember all that, don't worry. But just to, to know that there's this eightfold path, and all these things we talk about fall within this eightfold path. Well, the reason I bring this up 
is because that word right, notice each of the eight pieces start with the word right. It kind of got translated. I don't know that way. And so that seems to be what has stuck and what you'll hear most of the time. It's actually not a good translation. The word, it was preserved in this language called poly. You don't have to know the poly. But in case you're interested, the word is summa. It's S-A-M-M-A. And it's short A, so it's an a sound, summa. And if you look up in the Pali English Dictionary, sort of the etymology of the word is it, it actually means to be connected in one with, which I just think is beautiful. Because I think our Western minds, when we hear right, that means, well, there's also a wrong. It's that judgment. So if you don't do it this way, this is the right way. And if I do it over here, it's wrong. But that's not the meaning of it all. There's no right or wrong. It's just can we act and be in a way that's connected in one with? Right? Isn't that beautiful? Because there's no judgment. The more we are acting and being and living and practicing in a way that's connected in one with, with ourselves, with others, with life, with all things, it leads to more happiness and more freedom. In the times when we do get caught, which is going to happen to us all, there's not a judgment. It's just we have to have that compassion and to understand, okay, we got caught. It just weren't a time of acting in that way. And it does lead to more. And we can just see for ourselves, just look into our own experience and, and when we act in, in a way that, that, that creates more unhappiness, right? So when we... T- Really, if, if we were going to pick a single translation, I think a better one would be wise and skillful rather than right. So what is action? What is meditation? What is an understanding, a way of being that's wise and skillful? There is no one answer to that, for each of us are different. And even as individuals, we're at different times or different places you know, in our lives. So getting back to that question I asked about this idea of cultivating certain qualities versus just allowing and being, the Buddha taught he wasn't interested in trying to propagate some fixed doctrine. He wanted to get people free. So how he taught varied depending on what was needed in the moment. So it gets more less into the, uh, the science and more the art of this practice, which is knowing the ability. And this is something that we, as we tune in, we learn to know what is most needed in the moment. Sometimes what's needed is this sense of allowing being of opening to, not trying to gain anything or get anywhere, and just opening to being in relationship to our experience as it is. Kind of the way I was talking more towards the beginning. And that's the sense of it, right? Not being in a struggle with life as it is. And that's maybe the best, what's the most useful. However, if that's out of balance, we can get in this thing, well, I don't have to try, I don't have to do anything, this is just me, I don't want to, you know. And, and, and what might be needed then is more of this idea of cultivating certain qualities and we tend to work harder and, well, I need to get more concentration and more 
um, mindfulness, for example, where I want to develop, maybe I want to develop a more loving heart than I have now. So we want to cultivate that. That may be what's more needed in that time. So we'll lean more towards the style of practice that's more of the gaining or cultivating or doing. But if we get too out of balance in that, we might get too much striving or struggling or suffering, you know, and it gets more into, I'm, you know, how I am is not okay and I've got to get like this and we can be out of balance and then we may want to go back over to the style that's more just allowing and being and accepting and not clinging and letting go. So you can see both flavors kind of have a place. And all of us will have times when we are find ourselves wanting to or needing to or just naturally practicing in one style. Or we'll be more of the other style. And in relationship to life, right? There's sometimes when there's we want to sort of get rid of certain qualities and we want to gain others. And other times when we just want to open to life as it is. And finding the way where those two kind of can work together. Right? Does that make sense? So I think that's all I wanted to say. And we have some time if, um, if there are either any questions or if you have any comments, we can just open it up. Well, so I don't know if you you don't have to get into the details, and I don't know if it's appropriate or not. Um, I'll, uh, well, maybe I'll just make a a, a general comment, and, since I don't know the specifics. It's true that in general, all of us have things that we're clinging to, and the first part is to wake up to know that we are clinging to it. So that's the first part. If we haven't done that. There's no freedom or choice. And so much of the meditation practice and mindfulness is about being able to wake up enough to have choice. Because when we're not awake, when we're just lost in it, there is no choice. So you've done that piece. Okay. The next thing then is sometimes, even in the face of that, we either can't or we're not ready or whatever to let it go. And even we see that it might be causing us suffering. And so the image that I sometimes think of it's like you're holding a hot potato in your hand and it's like it's um, ouch ouch it's burning it's burning ouch ouch it's burning it's burning and really you know if you just we just want to we need to turn our hands over and let go and it's a big relief oh, right but sometimes maybe we're not ready to let go of that potato and and I don't mean this I hope it doesn't sound in a disrespectful way but really you may it may be that you might have to go through some more suffering about it Seriously, until you've realized that the suffering is more painful than whatever it is you're getting by clinging on to it. And I think what happens there, then a natural letting go tends to happen. It's kind of like they're saying, you know, you can't force the bud to flower, but when it's ready, it opens. And I think just by being engaged in that, willing to, and just, I think it takes a lot of courage to, to confront that head on and if you don't want to confront it head on that's okay too because sometimes it's too much and you know we need a break and we don't want to just get into it but but to the extent you can and be engaged in it and in its time 
you know, when, you're, when you've suffered enough, um, the letting go will happen. And then you can kind of, I don't know, is that useful? Okay, I, I don't have a magic, you know, without getting into it. I mean, you know, maybe someone might talk to you sometime if they knew the details, there might be some other things to it. But that would be my general answer. <laughs> Absolutely, and um, there's no question that w- and that that can happen. You know, we can be in the clinging, and then we think I shouldn't be clinging, and then the the version of the clinging kicks. You know, and it's just how the mind gets going. You know, we all do that. So once again, it's that mindful awareness and compassion, meeting it with mindful awareness and compassion, and sometimes just by seeing what you're doing uh, and being aware of it, just the fact that's a lot of awareness that you're talking about. So the fact that you see it. Do you, let me ask you, do you find that sometimes when you're able to see that, you're able to go, oh, and, and, and some letting go can happen sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it, a lot of it is just having enough awareness to realize because it can get subtler and subtler levels of that. Definitely. One question I have is like, uh, I have an experience that when I meditate, even when I'm not practicing, I find myself having a lot of imaginary conversations. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, well, if she says this, or if he says that, I'll say this, and on and on it goes, and I'll catch myself and I'll see it. And then the next step is I'm explaining this conversation to someone else. Right. And I'm saying, wow, isn't that amazing? I mean, I don't know if that was a com- just a comment or a question. But, uh, that was a comment and a question. Okay. Well, I would say a couple of things. I mean, I certainly, it, it just reminds me, I can think of times in my lives, life when there was some situation going on and then I'm projecting out into my mind. I go through this whole scenario and conversation and I'm actually all in anger, angry about something that hasn't even happened. I completely made up in my mind mm-hmm. the whole thing and I have all these emotions coming up and I'm really pissed off and... Yeah, I just so I mean, other people were nodding their heads. So I think you know, just human beings can, certainly tend can do that sometimes. So in general, once again, there's I have a couple of just things to throw out. One is once again, it just comes to the awareness of it and can see, and then you may or may not have choice about fueling that. Right? You may want to just let it go. But sometimes also, if you find that it is, it's kind of a compulsive, not compulsive, but you know, it just won't stop. It's got a lot of energy behind it. Oftentimes, there's something underneath it that's driving it. 
So sometimes, for example, I can find that maybe when I'm sitting meditating, my mind's just kind of going around, going around, and I want it to slow down, and then I need to stop and think, well, let me look. Is there something underneath that a little bit? And when I might look, I might notice, I'm just making an example, I might notice, oh, yeah, um, I had that difficult interaction this morning, and so-and-so said something, and that still kind of feels in my stomach, just kind of, ugh, you know, in my stomach, and I still feel kind of yucky from that, and... That's fueling it. And then when I can bring some awareness to that, it can start to let go a little, maybe oftentimes there's something fueling underneath. So. Any other? Oh, yeah. You have a uh, pleasant experience and then you're um, going, it's over and you're got, going back to it and you think about it. Is that clinging to? Like, you know, days after, after, and you're still there. Um, yeah, it just sounds like it's some clinging yeah. to me. I mean, I'm not putting a judgment on it, right? But I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily have to make a big problem about it. Sometimes it's a pleasant experience, and it's pleasant, and we think back on it. And I'm just thinking for myself, when I think back, this may not be exactly what happens to you, but when I think back, it kind of brings that pleasantness up again, right? And, it's, and you're still kind of re- reliving that experience. You feel that same joy of... When on the other hand, you, you, we, we are, you're teaching us to be present in this right. moment. So if you are kind of living in a um, past right. or a future, right. it's not very... That's true. But what's actually going on, that's going on, and we want to be a little careful here because there's a couple of levels. It's true being in the present is connecting with our experience, the actual experience in our mo- in the moment. But when we are reliving the past, what's actually going on in the present isn't, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. What's going on in the present is thinking about the past. Right? So first you can wake up to just what's going on. Before we decide to do anything about it, we can just know, oh, you know, reliving the past. That actually is being in the present, right? And can know that that's happening. And then we may want to let it go if, and, and say, oh, yeah, and, or we may not. But at least we have some freedom and choice there. Right? Can you mindfully choose to get lost in pleasures of memory? Well, yeah, right? I mean, we say get lost in it, I know, but certainly, um, um, I mean, you know, I can just give you an example of an exper- experience, uh, experiment you can try. Is um, I, I happen to like chocolate a lot, or you could pick whatever your favorite thing that like I you know, really like chocolate personally. It's right, so I can, you know, I'm going to get the chocolate, I'm anticipating the chocolate, I'm thinking about this whole thing before, and then I'm getting it, and then I'm eating it, I'm just lost in it, and it's great. And that's one level of experience, right? That was another way of being where instead of being just merged into it, lost into it, still go through the whole thing, but just be awake. So I can see that the, the anticipation and being aware of it. It's not telling me I shouldn't have it, but it's just I'm being aware of it. And um, uh, then, you know, I'm eating the chocolate and... Still having the experience, tasting and doing, but just awake rather than lost in it, just be aware of it.
Now try that experiment. It's a completely different experience. I think you can save a lot of money because if you are in this moment, you will eat it sl more slowly. Right. <laughs> so you can yeah. eat more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've actually found it when I did that exper experiment that what I found is that um, the chocolate still was pleasant. It was good, but you know, it's like it really it kind of cut a lot of the energy out of it, right? It was just kind of more just seeing it that pleasant experiences were arising. And, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just pleasant experience and it was there. Notice that. Take, take some of the most uh, pleasant experiences that we generally associate with, right? And, and take some of those experiences and try the experiment and see what the quality is in those, the most peak ecstatic moments of the chocolate or whatever that pleasant experience is and see what it is when I'm awake and when I'm just lost in it. Just an experiment. I'm not saying which one you should choose, but it's just worth looking. Do we suffer because we're intelligent? Do we suffer because we're intelligent? Do we suffer? Do we have a practice of mindfulness and we're doing because we're intelligent? Well, that's an interesting question. Did you all hear that? Do we, the, the question was, uh, do, we have, do we suffer because we're intelligent, right? And you said also, do we have to do this practice because we're intelligent? If we weren't intelligent, there wouldn't be a need, right? Well, certainly, that's, you know, we're getting kind of off into a philosophical discussion, but, um, which I love philosophical discussions personally. Uh, let's just say this. If, if we weren't intelligent, I, I, I guess the way I would like to answer it is this, and I don't know if this will be satisfying for you. If we weren't intelligent, we wouldn't have a choice, right? In other words, if you were like your cat or your dog, and I don't want to get into the discussion of, well, how do we know what a cat, but just, so, but anyway, I'm just trying to make a point here. <laughs> you know, I'm just assuming that your cat or your dog doesn't have that much choice. And I'm not trying to get into the question of how much a cat or a dog suffers or doesn't suffer, right? About creating that extra level of problem. It's an interesting discussion. But I will say this. What I do know is here we are as human beings. However it got to be that way, whether it should or what would we do if we different, I don't know that. But the truth is you are intelligent. Here you are. Life is what it is. Now what? So we don't have to practice, first of all, at all, Right? Just live our lives, how we want to live our lives. There's no have to. But it's worth looking to see how well that strategy works for us. I'm proposing that, and I think most or maybe all of us know that, or you wouldn't have even shown up here for a, even if it was just out of mild curiosity to check out, oh, I heard there was some meditation center in Redwood City, I'll go check it out. Even if that's all it is, at least you had a, a little spark of something that knows that if our happiness is dependent upon having to get certain experiences in life, in other words, having life look a certain way, whether it's the way our bodies are or our minds or how we feel or whatever, and if our happiness is dependent upon not having other experiences about how our bodies are or our minds or our our world, it's not a problem. 
as long as we get what we want and we don't get what we don't want. And the problem is living like that where we're at the effect of circumstances. Right? And we all know we spend a lot of our lives at the effect of circumstances. It's part of sort of the package of, of life as a human being. The Buddha was teaching, and it's not just the Buddha, but many traditions teach that there's this idea of liberation that we keep getting back to. Is, is the, In other words, the question is, can we find a way of being in the midst of this, of this thing we call life? You know, there's the John Kabat-Zinn book. I love the title called Full Catastrophe Living. This is the whole idea. It's a great title. In the midst of the full catastrophe. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's all a catastrophe, you know, but this is, you understand what he's saying. In the midst of it all, as it is, is there any hope of finding a way of being free in the midst of that? So the fact that we are intelligent and we find ourselves in a certain situation, what are we going to do? Are we just going to get up and go to work and try to get a better job and more money or a better relationship or bigger house? Well, maybe we will keep doing those things, right? That's okay. That's only going to go so far for us. There is some happiness about that, right? A good job is better than a crummy job, right? More money is better than no money. No question about it. But there's also a deeper level of freedom. Not so dependent on all that. And when you start to get a taste of it, that taste of freedom is, it really, I mean, it sounds like a cliche or a platitude, but it's, it's sweeter than any of those experiences that we might cling to. It is. The freedom is, is sweeter than trying to get it from the experience. So, rather than somebody sitting up in front telling you how it is. Actually, this came around nicely as a way to close. <laughs> the invitation is, is to find for yourself, is that possible? Is that really true? Not that somebody said it or you heard it, but now in your own life, is it possible? And to the extent we can notice when we're suffering, almost any time we're suffering, I would propose there's some kind of grasping or clinging or aversion. Really. So to the extent that we can, be awake with it. And then after that, to the extent that we can let go, we'll suffer less. And to the extent we can't, we can't. We can just do what we can do. That's the, that's the great uh, adventure of this uh, Dharma practice. Okay. So anyway, uh, we have to stop. So for those who, people who have been around know this, but for those who are new, um, it's traditional to end with a different kind of practice, which is called metta. It's M-E-T-T-A, metta, which is a Pali word. It means loving kindness. And we'll just take literally less than five minutes to end with that. Uh, the Buddha taught many kinds of practices of the sort that we were just talking about, these, what we call wisdom practices or liberation practices, coming to more wakefulness, Insight practices, vipassana is a, that's what vipassana is. He also taught a whole other class or category of practices that fell into this category. It's called the Brahma Viharas. The Brahma Viharas, the Brahma is sort of the, the heavens or the 
It's actually of the gods or divine. And the vihara is the dwelling place. So these practices are called the dwelling places of the gods or the divine abodes, meaning that these are qualities that by developing them, it, it elevates us to, you know, the, like the gods is kind of the, the image. And just like the Buddha emphasized these uh, wisdom practices, he also really emphasized the importance of developing these qualities. And I'll just tell you what they are quickly. There's metta, which is loving kindness, karuna, which is compassion, mudita, you don't have to remember the Pali, but mudita, sympathetic joy, which is actually finding happiness in the happiness of others, which is just so beautiful, that idea. Right? And then the fourth is uh, upekka, which is equanimity. And it's often taught that that's increasing levels of difficulty. So the first one we would work on is the metta, the loving kindness. It's also important to say with metta practice that um, when you do the practice, it doesn't matter whether or not you actually feel loving kindness when you do this. You may or you may not. It's a practice. We're developing these qualities. So we start where we're at. And oftentimes people, when they, not often, I shouldn't say that, but definitely sometimes people will do the metta. And actually there could be some anger or resentment that comes up as we start to dig in. more. So just to be aware that it starts with a lot of acceptance with whatever the experience actually is. And then it's just about the power of cultivating the mind over time and what is possible to develop. Okay? So we don't want to start judging ourselves is what I'm getting at. So please find some posture to be comfortable for this practice. Uh, you don't have to sit in any fancy posture and you want to be as comfortable as you can. And just um, letting your awareness connect back in now, back into the body. Just to notice whatever the experience is. Connecting in to the heart, any emotional states, into the mind. just to notice what we find and can we hold ourselves with a lot of acceptance just as we find ourselves, just as we find our experience. This is a practice of deep, it's a radical self-acceptance practice. And if you find that it's difficult to have that self-acceptance, then bring some compassion to that. And then from within that, that kind of cocoon or surrounded by that blanket of self-acceptance, start to send some metta, loving kindness to yourself. And one of the ways that we often do it is by, uh, there's just some traditional phrases that are very, very simple but powerful phrases that we can um, repeat silently to ourselves over and over that can just help direct the mind. So I will say the just simple but powerful traditional phrases, you can use one or more of these or make up your own phrases. Uh, the traditional phrases are, may I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free from inner and outer harm. 
May I be free from suffering. And just repeating one or more of those over and over. And in your own practice, you could continue that as long as you wanted. But for now, let's turn our attention now out to all the other people here in this room. And sending that same metta to everyone else here. Just as I wish to be happy, may everyone here be happy. Just as I wish to be free, may everyone here be free. And then finally, um, sending your awareness out uh, beyond this room and um, out into the community, into the world. And um, radiating out this metta uh, to all beings everywhere in all directions. Traditionally, there's a long list of directions we send the metta. We send it to those beings uh, near to us and far away those being seen and unseen, known to us and unknown, born and yet to be born, in all directions. The idea being that no beings are left out. Just as I wish to be happy, may all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. And then to end with this prayer, these are words of the Buddha on loving kindness. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Good night.